Hello, and welcome back to Dragon's Demise, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. I'm Greg. I'm Jacob. And welcome back to a new year. New us. Well, same us, but we'll be talking about some new games, and it's good to be back. Yeah. First off, just wanted to say probably noticed, but our Century Interview video has not yet been put out. We are still working on it, so stay tuned. It's it's quite an endeavor learning how to manipulate little cartoon figures. Yeah. So it's going to be cool when it comes out. Look for that soon. But for now, enjoy the podcast. And we hope you do. So let's start with what we've been playing. I got the chance this, this uh, break to play a game that, had it not been recommended, I would not have picked up. So, this is Harry Potter Defense of Hogwarts. Okay. It is the new card drafting game based on an IP by USAopoly. The game is made by USAopoly, famous for Monopoly knockoffs. Well, all right then. Yeah. That being said, I would never have thought to pick this game up had it not been for a few uh, employees at Labyrinth who told me, This is actually a very good game. (laughs) So I bought it. I got it for my girlfriend for Christmas birthday present. And we broke it out pretty soon after. And first, let's explain a little bit about the game. That It has boxes for each of the seven books. So as you go further and further along the game, the game gets harder. You get more cards to use. And it's just it's really cool that it has that progression. So... Something we didn't fully read in the rules, but the first two games, so game one, book one and book two, are supposed to be the teaching games for people who have never touched a card drafting game before. So not you, in other words. Yeah, not any of us. So the first game was actually pretty boring. And the second game was better, but still not amazing. And then we got to the third game, and that's when things started really rolling. Over the break, we actually went from box one all the way to box seven, playing actually boxes four through seven over a two-day period. Wow. One day, the three of us just sat down and went box four, five, or actually no, we went box three, four, five, six in one day, and then played seven the next morning. Okay. So is this like a legacy situation where after each box you kind of get new modifications that you can add to take on to the next chapter? Or is it more each one is a discrete game and then there are just differences to the play style? Neither, actually. So the way that it works is that you do have add-ons. So uh, just like legacy where you just add more stuff, but the it's just rules that are added on. And it's not nothing change, is changed that's permanent. So it's the kind of thing where each book or each box really gives you some extra mechanics, some extra cards that you can use, some extra items, and there are two major differences between them. Because some boxes, so in box three, you you open the first time when you have actually special powers for your characters. Mm. Then you use those all the way up to game seven when you unbox new powers for your characters. In game six, you also get specializations. So like, you know, you took the owls in the world of Harry Potter and you are, <laughs> you know, good at potions. You're good at, you know, transfigurations and like that. So that gives you a power that you can use along with your character power. So you have two 
always ready powers. Interesting. And the other big difference between the boxes, which is really the major difference, is new locations. So the locations that you are trying to defend. So in this game, you're pretty much, it's a cooperative game. You're trying to defend these locations from the, um, the Death Eaters or whatever other villains there are. Okay. And every game, every box, you shuffle in all the villains together, so the new villains that come from that box get shuffled in, so you have to defeat all of them. Wow. And then what you have to do is defend the locations from being taken over and controlled by the actual villains. Okay. Seems straightforward enough. So pretty much you have to kill the villains before they get enough control tokens onto the location cards. And so... It really has a nice progression. It feels nice. You get the villains from each book as the, the box is open. And you also get items from the books. And you start getting more like professors and other characters that appear more in those books later on and things like that. So it's really done well. A lot of fun. And it's, it still has a lot of playability. So you can choose any of the books that you want to play and just take out any cards that uh, they're clearly labeled that are, you know, game one, game two, game three. Oh, that's and nice. Take out any of the cards that are not for that game and play. Well, I can't wait to join you guys for a game. Yeah, it's, been, it's a lot of fun. One of the other games that we've had a chance to play since we've both been back in town after the holidays is a game called Phase. It's a constructed deck card game. So it's not like Dominion or Ascension where you're drafting and building your deck as you go along. You actually, you know, within the box, it comes with about, I want to say probably about 200 cards. And you build a deck from those cards. And those are going to have various effects. You know, some of them can say, you know, it has this much attack, it has this much defense. But then once you've put together your deck, that's it. You go into a game and you have those cards and nothing else, which we actually didn't realize yeah. when we opened it up. We were thinking, oh, it's a card game that uh, was prominently advertising the what looked like the card crafting system, which frequent listeners will know that we love from the game Mystic Veil. So we were really stoked. We were like, oh man, they released another one. But it turns out it only used the oversized sleeves from that, and there was no card crafting involved. Instead, the primary mechanic involves what's called phasing, where your cards, which are all creatures, I believe they're called minions, have a light side and a dark side. Good and and Yeah, good and evil. And over the course of the game, you can phase them. You can flip them upside down, this, that, and the other, mm -hmm. in order to achieve certain things. So some things give you benefits when they phase. Some things are stronger in their good form than in their evil form. Other things have certain benefits, you know, say, when this comes into play on its good side, you get this, versus when it comes into play on its evil side, you get a different thing. And so there's very interesting depths of strategy to how you phase things, how you draw things, and all that sort of thing, which is a shame because we really didn't get a chance to explore that because, again, it's not what we were expecting, so we just picked up these decks and we're trying to learn the rules on the fly and we sort of ran with it. And let me be the first to tell you, this is absolutely not a game that you should do that with. Please, 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 if you're going to play phase, do it with precautions. Make just, sure to read the rules ahead of time, understand them and all that. Also take a look at for any errata. One of the biggest things that I'd say took away from our game playing 
you know, enjoyment was the fact that really some of the cards were not clear what they actually did because terms were not adequately defined. There was none of that tightness that you do expect in a lot of the um, collectible card games which have this feature. That being said, I still thought the mechanics have so much promise. Absolutely. If this game can have the errata come in and really clear up all of these rules, I think that it has some really, really fascinating aspects. I love the fact that, you know, a an evil monster cannot block another evil monster. Mm-hmm. And, like, vice versa for the good monsters. And the cards that you put out, that uh, each of the creatures is used as mana, and you use it, and you just flip it so you can use it as many times as you want within a turn. But you can't use it to summon itself kind of thing. Right. It, it has some really interesting ideas. It has, it has some really interesting board management things and all that. So I really hope that they manage to get the rules tight because this is a, actually a card game that I might enjoy playing and I don't really like most collectible card games. Right. And that's the thing. You know, it's got that collectible card game feel. You come into it with a constructed deck format but you don't have to pay through the nose to get the other cards. You know, Magic the Gathering, Netrunner, all this stuff, even if it's not random, you know, booster packs, you still have to pay money to get the expansion sets so that you can build out your deck. This is just, you've got one box, it comes with everything you need to build a deck, and you go. And there's there's definitely a lot of potential there, and I do hope that they can get some of that clarity into the rules and some of the consistency, really. And, you know, we had problems where one card said destroy where another card said defeat where another card said you know discard all these different things that could be the same thing but the glossary didn't have an entry for one or the other of them but if they can get it together i'm really looking forward to the direction that that game takes yeah and then we also got to play a quick game of bards dispense profanity we did uh it was at a birthday which i mean that's the perfect uh, arena for that Mm mm-hmm for those of you who don't know, this is a game that is pretty much Cards Against Humanity using Shakespeare quotes. Which, in my opinion, makes it infinitely better. And I'm not even a Shakespeare person. Yeah, not either, but it's hilarious to see all these things that you can find in these plays. And some of them we were just like, wait, that was actually in this play? <laughs> and even some of our Shakespeare lovers like didn't uh, realize that those were part of the actual play. So, I mean... It's hilarious. You get to use all these funny Shakespeare quotes in very out-of-context reasons. And definitely, I think, an improvement on the Cards Against Humanity formula. I would definitely agree because there's just so much more genuine fun. You know, Cards Against Humanity, and this is obviously the point of it, always feel a little bit bad if you get a game-winning play sometimes. You're like, oh, man, I feel I feel dirty now. Whereas with, with you know nasty Shakespeare quotes that's just that's just the bard that's just who he was and that's a lot of fun exactly exactly I think there was only one case in which someone felt bad about one of the cards they played that's true and you got to play one other game Uh, what was that I did Um, so I got to play a new game called A Distant Plane it is sort of like a territory management it's mostly I would say similar to diplomacy in that you have four different factions who are competing for control of Afghanistan during the Afghanistan war you've got the the coalition forces led by America you've got the Afghan government you've got the Taliban and then you've got just the the local warlords and 
one of the things that I think made this game so interesting is that every faction had their own victory condition. There was no shared victory condition. It was very asymmetrical. And you have conditions that you're trying to meet that are synergistic, but not the same. So the coalition wants to generate support within the various cities and territories in Afghanistan and then have available troops, which is troops not on the board. Essentially, they want to generate support for America's interests among the people and then get their troops out. Where the Afghan government wants to generate patronage, which they do by having support, but when they generate patronage, it consumes the support token that you have in that territory. So both of these these organizations, which both historically and in the game are ostensibly allies, can generate support and benefit from that, but then one of them wants to keep it there and one of them wants to get rid of it. So you end up with these sort of, you know, tenuous coalitions and and uneasy alliances that I think makes the game very fun, but also very fraught. Um, And I would highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in not deviousness, but very complex, very cerebral gameplay, and also in, you know, geopolitics. It sounds like a very, very interesting game. It's it's quite good. I look forward to playing it again. Did you play it with two or four players? We played it with four. So I was the coalition, uh, and then our friends were the the other three players. Unfortunately, I had to leave partway through, and also I made a lot of play mistakes early on. I didn't realize that you could do certain things, but that is a mistake that I will not be making again. So I look forward to, to giving it another shot. Now let us spin you an epic tale with our review of Innis. So Innis is a territory control game for two to four players. And first of all, let's just say it's a beautiful game. It's gorgeous. It's absolutely stunning. So if you're into any kind of Celtic artwork and things like that, anything like that, this is really nice. It shows a lot of that kind of theme. Right, or mythology too. Uh, many of the, the names of the epic tale cards are inspired by you know Celtic heroes and myths and folklore, uh, and they're all very specific, and the rules actually includes uh, a, a short summary of each of them. So it's a great way to, to sort of involve yourself in that. Exactly, but let's talk about how to play. So first off, as I said, this was a territory control game. So you're trying to control the different territories, and the way that you do that is by placing your clans. You place your clans to begin with. You have two on each, uh, You can place them however you like, and whoever has more clans on a territory controls that territory. Simple. Now, placing the clans and doing any of the other actions. Now that is where it gets a little bit more complicated because you can only do actions that you have on the cards in your hand. In your hand, you have four cards. The way you get those four cards is through drafting. So first, four cards are dealt out to everyone. One card is set aside, so everyone has four cards. So there are 17 cards in the whole game, and one of them is set aside, and the rest are dealt out, so everyone has four cards. And then you take one, keep it, pass it, in the direction that you're passing that round. That is determined by pretty much a coin flip or a token flip. 
and you then get to pick up both the card that you set aside and the cards that are passed to you and choose two of any of those cards. So if you're not really that satisfied with the first card that you chose, you can put it back in and, and take two other cards if someone has you know, very good ones. Uh, and then you keep passing until you pass the last card to, the, uh, to whatever side you're passing to. And then the game begins. Right. And it's it's an interesting sort of progressive drafting mechanic that I really appreciate because it doesn't mean that you're locked into those actions that you previously selected. Um, but so then once you're done drafting, you have your four actions in hand uh, and the action phase begins. And so during that phase, starting with the Bren, which is the, the first player, which is the person who controls the capital, which is chosen at the beginning of the game. Starting with the Bren, you proceed in the direction of play, again, determined by that coin flip. And you can only do actions that you have on your cards like you mentioned you can take actions that are on your cards later on in the game you can do certain things that function as actions for each territory that you control you receive uh, an advantage card some of which represent actions and in fact some of them say you can just do this instead of passing yeah um and then also you have the opportunity to get what are called epic tales cards some of which can be played as actions so you can do that you can take what's called a pretender token which is how you signify that you're going for a victory and we'll get to that in a moment or you can pass and those are the only things you can do you are not locked in to passing once you've passed so say i pass and then jacob performs an action if we're in a two-player game then it's back to me and i have the option to do something now so as long as i still have something to do and not everyone passes consecutively I can still do those things, but it becomes sort of a, you know, a, a chicken. Yeah, it's a race to the finish where you say, okay, I'm going to bide my time. I'm going to wait to see what this person does. And if that person's in a stronger position than you, well, then they're just going to pass too. And then you've wasted your entire hand and sure, they've wasted theirs, but they're in a better board state. Exactly. So it definitely has a big action management uh, part. So absolutely, you know, you want to know, like, see when someone is passing or if you pass is it going to be the end of the turn and you still want to do something or how that's all going to work so sometimes it just at the beginning of the, of the game or at the beginning of the turn like we had one player in one of our games just pass like immediately for the first two turns because he knew that some other people were going to be doing something but then sometimes you might have something that's very time sensitive and you don't want someone to block you other times you're waiting to draw someone's card out so that, you know, there's the one cancellation card. Right. You want them to think that someone else is a bigger threat and not use it on one of your cards. So there are a lot of different things to, you know, really think about when you're playing your actions and you don't always just want to play, 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 play. So it has a very big action management thing and also you know you want to make sure that you know what you're going into when you do something right and so as we mentioned at the beginning those actions are how you do everything you can't place clans onto the field you can't move clans into other territories unless an action explicitly states that you can so you have different cars that can do those sorts of things but there's only a certain number of them in the deck and they're only going to go around and you can only claim four of them. So you really have to make a determination about what's important to me this round. Do I want to put clans on the field? Do I want to march into an adjacent territory and enter into a clash with another player's clans? Or do I want to build things? Um, 
And this is something that we haven't touched on yet, but there are two types of buildings. Uh, one is called sanctuaries. They don't provide any benefit while they're on the map, but they're important for one of the victory conditions. There are three. Three victory conditions, not three sanctuaries. <laughs> and then there are citadels. Citadels are the other type of building, uh, and they're very important in clashes. And clash, essentially, certain cards that allow you to move will say, when you arrive, instigate a clash. <laughs> and so that's a situation in which your forces and your opponent's forces are under attack. So you as the instigator get to act first. The person who is next in the turn order, according to the coin flip, has the opportunity to put their clans into citadels, which means that they're not exposed and they don't participate in combat at all. Normally, this sounds like a good thing because it means that your clans can't be killed or removed from the field, and it means that you get to maintain a presence in that territory. But... Since they're not participating, you can be forced out of combat earlier than you otherwise would. And since combat goes, you know, back and forth, it can be very much to your advantage to have that one extra turn. Mm -hmm. You can also play some of your cards as reactions in combat or to other things. Uh, so you really have two types of cards in total based on how you can use them. You have the season cards, which are the ones that you play as actions, mostly. Then you have the uh, Triscoll cards, which are the ones that you play as reactions. Mm -hmm. And those can be either the action cards or the, uh, the epic tail cards. Right. And <clears throat> many of these uh, Triscoll cards are combat-based. So when someone performs an attack or you perform an attack maneuver or something like that, then you can use this card and it does some bonus to you or gives you some other nice boon for the battle. This also really shows another aspect of the actual clashes, which is that a player does not have to discard their clans when they get attacked. They can also discard their green action cards. Mm -hmm. So this is another strategic thing that you have to keep in mind, because if you go right away, first thing you do, you go and attack someone. Yeah, you have more action cards in your hand, the green ones, but they might have more of those. They might have more to discard something else. And, and it's definitely a risk, right? Versus maybe later on, you, you, if they only have one or no uh, green cards left in their hand, then they have to discard their clans instead. I mean, both are very valid strategies if you want to make them discard their hand or if you want to make them discard the actual clans. Mm -hmm. So it's just another strategic thing to think about when you're, um, <laughs> when you're in instigating a clash or trying to move yourself across the board. So all of this, clashes, movement, cards, buildings, all of this is in search of one of three victory conditions, one or more of three. So those are be present in six different territories at a time. It's not required that you be lord over those territories. You just have to have at least one clan in six territories. Uh, you can be present in territories that have a total of six sanctuaries. So you can put multiple territory, multiple sanctuaries into a single territory if you are, again, just present, not lord over. Um, territories that have six sanctuaries, you qualify for a victory condition. And then the final victory condition is being lord over six clans, which is not to say that you have six clans on the field, because then the game would be over very, very quickly. Uh, rather, 
if you are lord over a territory, say you have uh, five people there, and your opponent has four people there, four clans, then you are lord over four clans for the purposes of victory. It's the number of clans controlled by your opponents in territories that you are in control of. So, like I mentioned, you can qualify for more than one of these victories at a time. And in fact, when it comes time to determine whether or not there is a victor, that is the first tiebreaker, is who meets more victory conditions. Um, so you can have a situation where, you know, you've got seven territories that you're in, and also, you know, some combination of those territories happens to have six sanctuaries in it. So now it's up to your opponents not only to stop you from achieving that one victory condition, but from achieving both of them as well. It's a very interesting sort of asymmetricalness, asymmetricality. One of the interesting things about the victory conditions themselves, though, is that you have to declare that you have a victory condition and use an action in order to do that. That's grabbing the pretender token. And now this is very important because normally in these kinds of games, if you didn't have that, you would wait till the very end and just declare your victory condition. And no one can do anything about it. Exactly. But once you're using your action to grab a pretender token gives the other three or however many players a chance to react to that. Because, say, they didn't notice that you had a victory condition or something like that. Now they have that chance that it wasn't that they pass and now they're you know, out of luck. They actually have the chance to react, which I think is very important. And also, as we'll touch on a little bit later, can lead to some very interesting situations. It's definitely true. So, all in all, the gameplay of this uh, game, it's really good. I've very much enjoyed it. But I think that the tying in of the gameplay and the theme is just amazing. Right. It, it absolutely works as a cohesive whole. Um, it's very just immersive almost in a way that not a lot of board games are. You know, again, the art is gorgeous and the, the names of the cards and everything about it just fits with the theme. Um, and it all comes together very, very nicely. That's not the only thing that fits. The pieces themselves actually fit together. <laughs> they do. They're, uh, they're almost jigsaw-like, uh, sort of fractally in the way they're shaped. And it's really amazing the way that they're done. They're, they, they fit together really nicely. And this is not a shape that you normally see in board games. You normally see hexes, you know, square tiles or something like this. These have like all little like uh, jagged parts and all that kind of stuff, but they fit together perfectly. And it's actually even nice. And I like this more than most of those other ways of making a board because of the fact that they stay in place. <laughs> like, they do. You can knock the table and they don't really move too much. You're not afraid of, you know, the board just coming apart like you would be in a game of, say, Castles of Magic and Ludwig, where, you know, you knock something and boom, everything goes like flying and you don't know where anything was. Right. So it's nice that they actually interlock. And yeah, the artwork on all the cards, the, the tiles that make up the board are really nicely painted and they're not as stylized, but like the actual cards themselves have a really beautiful Celtic I Irish kind of stylization. Mm -hmm. And I just loved it the moment I looked at it and I was really glad that uh, Kathleen actually pointed it out to me. It is absolutely a, a beautiful game, a wonderful game, but uh, as we always say, no game is perfect. So let's talk about some of the flaws. First, let me touch on the uh, what I what I talked about a little bit earlier, which is the you know when you grab the pretender token, 
and now everyone knows that you have a victory condition and you're gonna win. This really encourages a little bit of that munchkin-like behavior mm-hmm. where everyone just like you know, you're the you're about to win, everyone dog pile and stop you from winning. Yeah, you definitely draw aggro when you claim the first pretender token. Yeah, so it's very important to know when to claim it so you have enough time to pretty much defend yourself or that everyone else has already spent all of their cards and can't do anything against you anymore. So it's something that I think really can both help the game and hurt the game. It is a bit difficult when the game just like keeps dragging on because as soon as one person goes above and like I have the pretender token, everyone just gangs up on them and then like the board is pretty much cleared. Yeah. So you have that issue where I've seen this in the past where pretty much it was almost a start over, like as soon as the uh, the pretender token was taken because, you know, one person gets, you know, destroyed and then someone else like in the same turn like managed to get some squeak out some victory conditions so they get all their stuff destroyed, but the people that were doing the destroying now have nothing left. So, and then you're really back to square one. Right. And then it's, you know, just build up again and spend another, you know, 45 minutes just trying to get back to that point where you were. Mm -hmm. But one of the other sort of uh, problems that I think the game runs into is a complexity of the rules and specifically ways that things aren't necessarily always clear. When you enter into a clash with someone, for example, a lot of times that's provoked by movement. So you move your units into a territory and then you fight it out, you do all that sort of thing. But it's not exactly clear when control of that territory shifts. So there, there's no explicit rules about you control this territory as soon as you have more clans there than anyone else, or you don't control this territory until after the clash has ended, which can have a very major impact when you're playing some of those reaction Triscoll cards. Some of them will say in a territory where you're present, but a lot of them will say in a territory you control. Um, And so that can make a big difference with the flow of battle. And it's unfortunate that it's not necessarily clear and there's no, as far as we're aware, errata online or, or forthcoming. Similar sort of situation, you've got cards. You've got the action cards, and the action cards are going to get shuffled each round because they have to be redrafted. But then you've also got epic tail cards, and you can draw through those in a number of ways, but there's nothing explicitly in the rules about what do you do when you're done with them. It doesn't tell you whether or not you're supposed to shuffle them. And again, these are very powerful cards. These can be game-changing cards, just one of them. So, you know, if you're supposed to leave the discard pile where it is, that can have a pretty serious impact on what people choose to do, what actions they choose to take, versus if you know that there's an infinite supply of those, that's going to affect your outlook as well, because you know that you can play a long game and not have to worry about your resources running dry. So some of those clarifications we'd, you know, we'd really just like to see, and I'm sure if they do a second run or uh, if they have a web presence, they'll, they'll put out a rata eventually. Yeah, and the last thing that I wanted to mention was just a little bit with the unevenness of the player skill. So if player skill is uneven, it can lead to many awkward situations of especially Mm king-making. So sometimes you'll have, you know, two players tied or something like that, and the one player is just left there to, you know, they can screw either one of them over, but they have to choose which one. So it's difficult to 
to play in that way. So sometimes it can be really hard to you know, avoid that kind of situation. And I've been there a few times where that's been the case and it can be a little bit frustrating. And uh, you know, when someone chooses the winner, yeah, so that's, it's hard to deal with, but, and I think that there are some ways of dealing with it in the game, but it's, it can just be very difficult. So Greg, what do you think of this game? I love this game. I'm really glad that it was recommended to you. I'm really glad that you sat down and played it with me. And now I am really glad to give it an official buy it rating from me. I think it's gorgeous. I think it's two to four players, which means it's very easy to get people to the table. And if you buy it, I don't think you'll ever not enjoy it. Agree completely. I love this game. The theme is amazing. I love the theme itself. The artwork is beautiful. And I think that this is a game that's definitely necessary for anyone who has a decent sized board game library i definitely say buy it all right so you've heard us describe it but you know we can get into a little bit more detail here about what sort of game this is if you like territory control games specifically very heady strategic sort of games like twilight imperium scythe all these sorts of games where not only is controlling the territory important but deciding how you control it and what actions you take in order to exert your control are very important. I think this game fits right in with those. It's got a lot to offer in some of the same sort of strategic spheres with a really unique flavor that some of those other games don't don't bring. Exactly. It has the action management of both of those games and as well as the territory control. I think that those are games that if you like those, you'll like this one. And if you like Innis, you'll love those two games. Right. Another game that I wanted to mention, though, is 8-Minute Empires. Uh, this is a also a territory control game, but it's a much smaller scale. As you can tell from the title, 8-Minute Empires. It's very fast, very quick, but also still has that kind of territory control, very similar kind of actions. You're using cards for the actual actions as well, and you can only do those limited actions that are on the cards. So... It's still moving the little pieces around and getting them into the different territories. And there's not as much fighting as you would expect in many of the territory control games. So definitely another one I would take a look at if you like this. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dragons and Mice. We really hope you enjoyed our review of Innis, and we hope that you will tune in for our Century in Review when that comes out in the near future. Be sure to join us next week for our review of New Bedford.